So as I mentioned, Romans is divided neatly into three sections. The diagnosis section, which is chapters one through three. The deliverance section, which is chapters four through what? 11, which we just finished last week. And then the description section, which begins in chapter 12 and goes through the end of the book through chapter 16. So you've got three neatly divided sections. There's overlap between those sections, but just for simplicity's sake, there's three neatly divided sections, diagnosis, deliverance, and description. And in the first three chapters, we saw that Paul, the apostle Paul diagnoses the whole human race. I mean, everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty. Moral people are guilty, immoral people are guilty, religious people are guilty, irreligious people are guilty, rule keepers are guilty, rule breakers are guilty, everyone is guilty, everyone has fallen short of God's glory. He levels the playing field by showing that no one is righteous, no, not one. There are none that seek after God, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And we're supposed to come to the end of chapter 3 and feel this heaviness, this weight, this deep sense of desperation and dirtiness because beginning in chapter 4, Paul moves from diagnosis, he wants to level us in the first three chapters, close all the back doors so that none of us can say, well, that's... They're bad, but I'm good. I'm making it. They're not. He wants to shut all exit doors, and he wants us to feel the weightiness of our desperation and the heaviness of our guilt and shame and all of those things because he moves into chapter 4, um, and he really goes from diagnosis to deliverance, and he spends eight chapters preaching the radical one-wayness of God's rescue. He introduces us, as we've seen, to some mind-blowing, life-altering ideas ideas and words, words like justification and adoption and election and righteousness, these amazing God-centered, God-saturated words that change everything, that tell us about God's unilateral rescue of sinners. And throughout this entire section, the deliverance section, he, he's made one point. In Jesus, God has come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He has freely given to you what you could never get for yourself. All that your heart longs for, the worth and the value and the validation and the justification and all of those things that you long for, the rightness, all of those things that you long for, the affection and approval and acceptance and those things, God has given to sinners for free. He has, in the person of Jesus, secured for us what we could never secure for ourselves. And what we discover when we compare those two sections is that God saves bad people because bad people are all that there are. There is no such thing as a good person that God identifies and goes, okay, there's my all-star. I mean, God saves weak and desperate people because weak and desperate people are all that there are. That's all he has to choose from. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, he's a bottom feeder. That's what God is. He's a bottom feeder. He, he feeds at the bottom in all the muck and the dirt that we are in our lives. That's where, God, that's where God feeds. He comes down to us because we could never go up to him. His rescue is one-sided. It's single-handed, and it's total. God rescues from beginning to end, which we saw in Romans chapter 8 where 
Paul says very, very clearly that, you know, I mean, those who he foreknew, he predestined. And those who he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. That there are no human fingerprints on that golden chain of salvation. God does it all. And like Job says uh, in Job, salvation is of the Lord. He does it from beginning to end. And that section, as we saw last week, that section concludes, that whole deliverance section concludes with Paul's worship. I mean, he's just, he himself, even though he's the preacher, he himself is just blown away. And he ends that section by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Sola Deo Gloria. To God be the glory because he has done it all. He has accomplished it all on our behalf. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but because God is good and God delights in saving wretches like us. Okay, so that's, that ends the, the deliverance section. And now he moves into the description section and he starts popping off about what a life that has been set free actually begins to look like and feel like and taste like. And you can see that when he says at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in other words, in light of everything I've just said, you're guilty, you're a wretch, you're broken, you're ill-deserving, you're a sinner, but God has done something amazing for you. God has rescued you. He's come to you. The hound of heaven has tracked you down and magnificently defeated you, and he has wrecked you in order to set you free, and God has done it. And in light of all of that, he says, in light of everything that is now true about you, let me describe for you what a life that has been set free by this amazing news actually begins to look like and feel like and taste like and smell like and all of those things. Um, and the way he describes this in all these chapters, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the free life that Paul describes is really the life of self-forgetfulness. That's the free life he describes. As I was reading through this section again yesterday and reading all of Paul's exhortations to, you know, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought and to lay our lives down for one another and to love our enemies and to serve our neighbor and all of those things, the one phrase that came to mind when I was thinking about the way Paul is describing the free life, the person that's been set free from himself, from herself, is a life of self-forgetfulness. That's somewhat counterintuitive because we don't think about self-forgetfulness as being freeing. We've bought into this idea that doesn't come from the Bible, but we bought into this idea that if we're going to be free, we have to go out and get that we have, to, we have to achieve, we have to do great things, we have to accomplish, we have to make something of ourselves, and if we can just do all of those things, we will experience the freedom that we long for. Paul says just the opposite. Paul says the real free life is a life of self-forgetfulness, and you know this to be true because when you spend your life trying to get when you live in relationship with people and your whole goal is to extract from them what you think you need in order to be happy, life becomes burdensome. 
It becomes heavier. It doesn't become lighter. It becomes heavier because now the burden is on you to secure for yourself, whatever it may be, to secure for yourself what you think you need in order to be satisfied and content and happy and ultimately free. Um, But Paul here describes in a counterintuitive way the free life as being a life of self-forgetfulness. And he lays out here basically four chapters of good works as an overflow of everything he's already said that is true about us. But this is the key, and this is what I want to do this morning. This is so important um, because there's, there is a problem inside the church whenever we contemplate good works and what the Bible has to say about good works, and we can easily slip into moralistic mode when we get to sections of the Bible like this. And what I want to do this morning, because, well, if we don't understand what good works are, and specifically who they are for, we will misread sections of the Bible like this and turn them into a moralistic handbook. We'll forget everything that Paul has just said, And it's like, okay, good, this is what happens. Okay, this is why I remember a few years ago, I had, I can't remember what sermon series I had preached through prior to this, but I was, I announced that I would be preaching through the book of James. And I can't tell you how many people came up to me after I made that announcement and said, good, finally, we're getting to a book in the Bible that tells us what to do. It's practical. And I was a little bit taken aback by that because I said, I know you better than you know yourself. I know why that excites you. I know, I, I know the human condition, the fallen human condition well enough, because I know myself, to know why something like that excites you because it's almost like, okay, checklist time, finally. This guy is so anti-checklist. He's so anti, do more, try harder. And so, it, finally, we've got, we've got him cornered. He's got to preach through James, and James is nothing but telling us to do more and try harder. It's basically giving us a checklist. We love that stuff. We love it when the spotlight is turned back on us. We just love it. Um, So I preached through James and showed that that's not at all what James does. Um, And, you know, people left the church and, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, they may have. I I don't know. but um, so I, I, wanna, I want us to be very careful here. Uh, I want to provide for us this morning a framework for how to understand all of those sections in the Bible that instruct us and that give us things to do. I want to give us a framework because if we don't have a good gospel-centered framework, we will misread sections like this, and that part of us that loves attention and loves control and loves being told what to do will revel in this and forget everything that Paul has said up until this point. So all that he says now is couched within the framework of what I'm about to say to you. And I am... Um, I think, in my opinion, um, that the most helpful distinction that I have read to help us understand what to do when we get to sections of the Bible that are describing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do is Martin Luther's distinction between passive righteousness and active righteousness. So just 
you, uh, just write that down. I'm going to explain what I mean in a second, okay? Um, his distinction between passive righteousness and active righteousness has been maybe the single most helpful distinction I have ever encountered when it comes to reading the Bible rightly in terms of what to do with these sections. What do we do with these sections so we don't slip back into sort of a moralistic, do more, try harder framework, which is very tempting to do. This is what he said. He said that Christians live on two planes. Okay, not like airplanes. I mean, Christians live on two planes. They live before God vertically, the vertical plane, Coram Deo, before the face of God. They live before God vertically, and they live before one another horizontally. Okay, so you've got two planes. You've got the vertical plane, the horizontal plane. We live our lives, we live our lives on these two planes. We live before God vertically, we live before one another horizontally. And he said, and he's right, he said that our righteousness before God is passive. That's why he called it passive righteousness. I'll explain what that means in a minute. And our righteousness before one another is active. So the passive righteousness of faith, we can call it vertical righteousness, is what makes us right before God, fully and finally. Okay, that's what makes us right before God. It's passive. We don't do anything to get it. It's righteousness that comes our way minus our merit, and it puts us right before God forever so that things between God and sinners like you and me are forever fixed. It's passive. We receive it. We don't achieve it. We receive it. The active righteousness of works, or what we can call horizontal righteousness, is done in service to one another. So all of the acts of love, all of the good works that we are called to do are intended to love and serve our neighbor. So if I were to give this sermon a title, it would simply be this. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. That's the title I would give it. Because as long as we think that good works are for God, we will perpetuate this enslaving idea in our minds that we do these things in order to keep God's favor. We do good works in order to keep God happy with us. So the reason this distinction is so helpful is because when you and I typically think of good works, we think of them in terms of things that we must do in order to maintain God's love and approval and all of those things. That's typically. And I grew up in church, and I grew up in Christian schools, and I grew up in a Christian home, and um, this was never explained to me. And because of the sinner that I am, which is marked first and foremost by this longing, this pursuit of our own rightness, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we read this, and if we don't have if we don't have the proper framework to understand what to do with this stuff, we automatically gravitate toward, these are things I must do in order to maintain God's favor. These are things I must do so that God doesn't cast me out. But if we read it that way, then we pretty much disregard everything that Paul has said up until this point. Because he has said some crazy stuff like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. He has said crazy things like, no matter what you do, if you are in Christ, you can't separate yourself from God's love. It's impossible. You live your life in an irremovable suit of forgiveness. You live in a cage of righteousness. 
and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. You live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished. It's a done deal. Everything between you and God is forever fixed. The debt has been paid in full. So if we read these sections as if these are things we must do in order to maintain God's love and favor for us, then we pretty much disregard and ignore everything that Paul has said up until this point. So we have, to, we have to read this stuff in light of that stuff. We have to read this and interpret this in light of everything Paul has said. So um, as I mentioned, I grew up, you know, Christian home, Christian school, Christian this, that, and the other, listening to Christian music and wearing Christian clothes and eating Christian food and all that stuff. Um, and um, and I, I, I rebelled against it all, as you know. I mean, I walked away from all of it. It was lame. I didn't like it. I walked away from all of it. I never had an intellectual problem with the Christian faith. Uh, when I dropped out of high school and got kicked out of my house at 16, I, I didn't run away because I didn't believe intellectually that God was God and Jesus was who he said he was and accomplished what he said he accomplished. I didn't run away for that reason. I ran away because it just, it was lame, you know? I mean, I, I was like, I have lots of fun that I want to have, and I am, um, I'm, I, there's no way I can pull this off. If Christianity is all about good people becoming better, I just simply don't fit. I don't fit. I mean, if, if the Christian faith is, you know, just do it rather than it is finished, I don't fit. I, I just simply don't fit. And so I ran away from it all and rebelled against it all. And at 21, uh, as you know, God saved me and rescued me and raised me from death to life. He showed up and magnificently defeated me and uh, haven't been the same since. But something terrible happened to me right after I became a Christian, and that was um, I actually started to develop my own checklist, okay, because I was going to run as far away from my raucous, riotous, rebellious lifestyle that I had been living, and now I was going to get clean. I was going to clean up my act, and so I developed this long list of spiritual disciplines, which are good, by the way, depending on how you approach them. Uh, they can be terrible, depending on how you approach them. Um, but I developed this long list of spiritual disciplines that I was going to meticulously observe. It included things like journaling, okay, journaling, which means, you know, getting up in the morning, uh, praying, reading your Bible, and writing love letters to God, okay? I did that every morning, every morning, okay? I mean, I had this Bible reading plan that had me read three chapters of the Bible a day. I was convinced that if you prayed for an hour every morning, that God liked you way more than if you simply prayed for 45 minutes. So I decided I was going to pray for an hour. So this was my routine. I would get up early because everybody knows that godly people get up early. Everybody knows that. So I was going to get up early. I hadn't woken up before 11 o'clock in my entire life unless I was going surfing. Um, but here, I mean, I'm setting my alarm at 6 a.m., which is crazy, okay? Crazy. It's an ungodly hour. Um, I've since been set free from that burden. Um, but I, so I would set my alarm, and I would get up, and all of this sounds great. I'm not knocking this stuff, okay? If you get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and you read three chapters of the Bible every day, and you pray for an hour, and you journal, I 
praise God, okay? I'm not knocking that. I promise you I'm not knocking that. It was my approach to those things that was beginning to enslave me. And so what happened was, because I didn't understand this, this distinction, what happened was on the days when I would read my three chapters and pray for an hour and journal a page or two, I felt great. I felt like God loved me. I felt like God liked me. I felt like I was in good with God. But then there were those mornings, few and far between, but there were those mornings where I would get up late. I'd hit the snooze button three or four times. Instead of getting up at six, I ended up rolling out of bed at seven, which is still an ungodly hour, if you ask me. Um, But I would wake up at seven. And of course, I didn't have time to read three chapters, so I would read one chapter. And I didn't have time to pray for an hour, so I would pray for maybe 20 minutes. And I, I, you know, didn't have time to journal two pages, so maybe I would journal a paragraph. On those days, tell me you've never felt like this. On those days, I can remember distinctively feeling like God was upset with me. Like I had blown it. You know, like I, I, how in the world could I not give God this amount of time? How lazy. I mean, he came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for me. And I can't even get out of bed before seven and read three chapters of the Bible and pray for an hour and journal two pages. I mean, what is the matter with me? You know, I mean, what in the world is the matter? And I literally felt like God was disappointed. He was upset. He was looking at me from heaven with a snarl on his face going, when are you going to learn? And so what I would do is the next morning I would get up and I would atone for my own sin. I would get up 30 minutes earlier. I'd read four or five chapters of the Bible. I would journal. And on those days, I felt wonderful about myself. And I was convinced God was saying, now, now, there you go. Okay, that, that's the all-star that I recruited right there. That guy. Well, you see, the reason I thought that way, it was as if God's view of me was ultimately determined by what I did or did not do. So Jesus' work on my behalf was kind of eclipsed and sidelined, and it, all, it became all about me. As you've heard me say before, the, the, the symbol of the Christian faith for me went from being a cross to a ladder. It was all about Jesus in the beginning, and thank God he got me in because I couldn't get myself in. There was no way. But now that Jesus helped me in, I was going to keep myself in by doing all of these things to prevent God from casting me out and regretting his decision to save me, okay? Well, I mean, I talk to people all over the place, all the time, who have this view of God and this view of the Christian faith, this view of the Christian life, this view of good works, because they don't understand this distinction, which absolutely saved me, the distinction between passive righteousness and active righteousness. You see, when you believe that your good works are for God rather than your neighbor, it undermines what the Bible clearly says about things between Christians and God being forever settled because of what Jesus accomplished for us. So when we imply that our good works are for God and not our neighbor, as if God needed them, um, we perpetuate the idea that God's love for us is dependent on what we do instead of on what Jesus has already done. But, all right, if we understand or when we understand that everything between God and us has been fully and finally made right, 
It helps us understand what good works are and specifically who they're for. So if you look at James, for instance, um, it's right after Hebrews. Probably doesn't help you much, but... Um, I mean, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, when he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, what, what's he describing there? I mean, throughout James, throughout the Bible, good works are defined and described horizontally. I mean, the illustration he gives, what, you, you think you have faith, but if that faith is not overflowing spontaneously in service to others, it's not living faith you have, it's dead faith you have. It's mental assent. But what he's describing here is works that are done horizontally in service to our neighbor, loving one another as Jesus has loved us. So when we talk about good works, when the Bible talks about good works, it's not speaking about works being a vertical transaction between God and us to make sure that we are making more deposits than we are withdrawals so that God stays happy. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, what the Bible talks about when it describes good works, everything Paul's going to say in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, even 16, is all on the horizontal plane. He's already told us everything we need to know about the vertical plane. Done deal. It is finished. Relax. Rejoice. It's over. End with Paul in Romans 11 with his posture of worship where he's saying, for from him and to him and through him are all things. We can now get off the performance treadmill to God be the glory. He has rescued us fully and finally. It's over. It's over. The sweatshop is closed when it comes to the vertical plane. Now, he says, in light of all of these things that God has done for you, really this one thing God has done for you in order to set you free, this is what freedom looks like. It's what freedom feels like. It's what freedom smells like. Um, so this is what he's describing. Forever freed from our need to pay God back, or secure God's love and acceptance, we are now free to love and serve others. Okay, so there's this um, double side of freedom. There's freedom from, we don't need to secure God's love, we don't need to secure God's acceptance, we don't need to secure God's favor, that's a done deal. He delights over us because of what Jesus has done. He's not angry with you, Christian. He's delighted over you because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And in light of that, in light of the fact that you are now in forever, this is what, this is what life begins to look like. And so you're free from this, from the need to secure for yourself God's love and favor and that sort of thing. And as a result of that, you are now free to love and serve your neighbor. So you could put it this way. We work for others horizontally, active righteousness, because God has worked for us vertically. 
passive righteousness. Um, this will, I'm telling you, if you guys get this, I don't want this to sound overly theoretical or abstract or anything like that. I don't, I don't want this to feel that way. That was awesome. I don't know who just clapped, but thank you. Um, I don't want this to feel theoretical. I don't want this to feel abstract. I don't want it to feel like a Sunday school class. I want this to set you free from making the same kind of mistake that I made as a young Christian that I still make because I'm a sinner um, of thinking that all of these things, these instructions, these directions that are given to us in the Bible are given to us in order to, to further secure God's love and favor to us. Um, so you could put it this way, because everything I need in Christ I already possess, passive righteousness, I'm now free to do everything for you, active righteousness, without needing you to do anything for me. Okay, that's how those two things come together. This is what Paul was getting at when he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith, passive righteousness, expressing itself through love, active righteousness. Okay, so what, this is what he's getting at. So, Passive righteousness tells us that God does not need our good works. Active righteousness tells us that our neighbor does. So the aim and direction of good works are horizontal, not vertical. Now, this is what happens. Okay, our, um, our hearts are always confusing these two planes because of what I mentioned a few minutes ago. We're just naturally prone to self-righteousness, securing our own righteousness, securing our own rightness, trying to get for ourselves what only God can freely give us. And because our hearts are naturally prone to wander in that direction, we're always confusing these two planes because our natural tendency is to secure our own rightness. We view our good works as a way to keep things settled with God on the vertical plane rather than as a way of serving our neighbor on the horizontal plane. And so we confuse those two things, and it absolutely wrecks our understanding of God. It clouds our understanding of how God feels about us. Remember I told you that story, uh, if you were here a number of weeks ago, when I was putting Jenna to bed, um, probably a year or more ago, and uh, I was reading to her from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is amazing, get it, buy it. Sally, if you're paying attention, you owe me money. Um, she wrote it. Um, so uh, I was putting her to bed. I read through the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I just asked her this simple question. I said, honey, um, how does God feel about you? How do you think God feels about you? And without batting an eye, she, she just immediately said, disappointed. Disappointed. And I get it. She's, she's sensible and intuitive enough to know and self-aware enough to know that God is holy, she's unholy. God is perfect, she's imperfect. God is sinless, she's a sinner. And so it makes sense to simply say, logical sense to simply say when asked, how does God feel about you? Disappointed. Well, that's not just a little girl problem. That's your problem. It's my problem. You know yourself, you know your heart, you know what goes through your mind, you know what you've done, you know what you've left undone, you know where you're falling and failing. You, you, you keep secrets that you hope and pray no one will find out about because if they did, they would run for the hills. God, I don't care who you are, how long you've lived, how long you've been married, there are things that you have thought or failed to think, things you have done or failed to do 
things you have felt or failed to feel that if your spouse of 50 years found out, it would be the end. Okay, you know. I mean, we, we just, we know. And the, the best way to prove this is to simply say, how many of you would stay seated if we just simply had a recording of your life, both your, what you did or failed to do and what you thought or what you felt all week long and just played it on the screens. Said, okay, Joey Spinks, you're next, you know, or whatever. Clark Cochran, you're next. You know, how many, how many people would stick around for that? Nobody. I was supposed to be empty in five seconds. And all that to say is, you know, you know, you know that you're not deserving of God's love and you're not deserving of God's affection and God's approval and all of those things. You know you're not deserving of it. And so it's super, super easy for us to conclude when we stop for a moment in the quietness of our hearts and think, how does God feel about me? Okay, it says he loves me. I get it. But does he like me? I mean, does God even like me? Because the way I've acted this week, the things I've done or not done, how in the world could a holy, perfect, righteous, loving, gracious God love me? How could he like me? I mean, it's, it's just it's impossible for me to conceive of the fact that there's nothing I can do to separate myself from God's love. Seriously, nothing. So if I walked out of here today, with an M60 and mowed down everybody at the beach. I mean, really? Now, you probably wouldn't do that unless you're senile, but there are senile Christians. Trust me, I've met lots of them. Um, but I mean, is there nothing, nothing? If I am in Christ, is there nothing that I can do to separate myself from God's love? Fine. Tullian, I'll grant you that, but there's plenty of things I can do to prevent God from liking me. It makes sense um, to think that way. Well, we think that way because we fail to make this distinction. We fail to embrace and understand that everything on the vertical plane has been taken care of. It's been taken care of. It's It's done. So when we are given our sanctified checklists in the Bible, these are not things that are revealed to us so that they can serve as a transaction between God and us vertically. These are things that are intended to define and describe what a free life actually looks like when we're no longer needing to get for ourselves and have been set free to give to our neighbor, even our enemy, Paul says here. Um, and so it's for these reasons you say, well, okay, well, why, why pray? Why read the Bible? Why listen to sermons? Why, why administer and participate in the sacraments? You know, aren't those transactions between God and us? Prayer, Bible reading, coming to church and listening to sermons. I mean, those, come on now. Aren't those transactions between God and us? No, actually, the reason that we, it's important for us to pray and read the Bible and listen to sermons and partake of the sacraments is be, not because these things increase God's love for us, but because it's in those places where God reminds us that things between he and us are forever fixed. And we need to be reminded all the time. Because if we're not, we fall back into self-salvation mode. 
And so it's at those rendezvous points. See, I was, it's not that reading my Bible and praying and you know, all of that stuff, journaling was a bad thing. It's a great thing. I encourage you to do it. You should do it. I should do it. Okay, we should all do it. Let's do it together, all right? Um, it's that I was misinterpreting what those rendezvous points were for. I was thinking those are places I go so that God stays happy with me. It wasn't, those are places I go to be reminded by God that he is happy with me, that I've been set free from my guilt and my shame, and I've been set free from God's wrath, so now I am forever approved, forever accepted, justified, validated, I'm in, and that means I can now give everything to you without needing you to give anything to me. That's what happens when we go when we go to the Bible, to those rendezvous points where God reminds us that the debt has been paid, the ledger has been put away, and that everything we need in Christ we already possess. And what that does, what this vertical declaration does, is it forever secures us and sets us free to see the needs around us and work hard horizontally to meet those needs. See, because if we're constantly obsessed with what we need to be doing to make sure God stays happy with us, I'm not noticing what you need. Because I'm, I'm spiritually navel-gazing. It's what I call, you know, theological or spiritual narcissism. I'm just, I'm obsessed with how I'm doing, whether I'm doing it right or not, whether or not God is happy, whether I've done enough. I mean, it's, what is it? Is it three chapters? Is it two chapters? Is it one chapter? What if I just read a verse? Is that good enough? Is God going to think I'm lazy and not like me and sort of depart from me? The, on those days, when I'm having a good spiritual day, is God like, yes, and when I'm having a bad spiritual day, God turns his back on me? I mean, what, what, I mean, what's going on? Um, and so what happens is, well, when that happens, I'm not, I'm not looking out for you, okay? I'm not forgetting myself. It's not a life of blessed self-forgetfulness. It's a life of, you know, blessed self-securing, got to secure for myself. I can't be obsessed with me and serve you at the same time. None of us can do that. None of us can do that. Remember, I, I've said this before, that story, I've said it on numerous occasions, the story of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water as Jesus summoned him out of the boat and onto the water, and he was doing just fine when he kept his eyes on Jesus. But when he looked down to see how he was doing, he began to sink. And lots of people inside the church are sinking because they're so obsessed with how they're doing, whether they're doing it right or not. And as a result, we're not serving one another. We're trying to get God to serve us by doing right, trying harder, dotting our I's and crossing our T's. But when we are freed from the burden of using biblical instructions to gain favor with God, we are free to look at those instructions, not as conditions that we have to meet in order to get more of God's love, but as descriptions and directions as we seek to love others. So what Paul's doing in this section is he's giving us, he's giving us a roadmap of freedom. He's saying, you want to know, because you're going to be tempted to think that the free life is take, get. And what I want to do, Paul says, is describe the free life as give, give. Because everything has been given to you, you don't need, need anything from anybody. Which means you are now free to give everything to everybody. That's freedom. That's the light life. That's not the heavy life. The heavy life is a, is a life of 
burden. The light life is a burden-free life where you're not trying to get because you already have everything you need, so now you're free to give. So this distinction also helps us understand why it's important to fight sin. Why is it important to fight sin? Okay, I mean, if you would have asked me that 10 years ago, is it important to fight sin? Yes. Why is it important to fight sin? Because God might disown me if I don't. I mean, he just, he just might just go, you know what, made a mistake, you're out. Um, but that's not, that's what happens, that's how we understand what it means to fight sin when we confuse these two planes. We fight sin not because our sin blocks love for, blocks, blocks God's love for us, but because our sin blocks our love for others. So why does Paul say, don't be greedy, don't lust, don't do these things, fits of anger, all of these things, all of the works of the flesh that he describes in Galatians. And he says, put those things to death, mortify those things, get rid of those things, fight those things. Why does he say that? Because if we don't, God's love will go away? No, it's because those are the selfish things we do that block our loving our neighbor. I mean, that, that's what... That's what lust and greed is. It's taking, and when I'm taking from you and not giving to you, I'm not loving you. I'm not serving you. And so uh, when the Bible describes why it's important to fight sin, and then it describes the kind of sinful acts we should put off and fight, it's doing that, it instructs us in that way, not because our sin blocks God's love for us. The only way you could conclude that is if you just rip Romans 8 out of the Bible. You just have to rip it out of the Bible. And you can't rip it out of the Bible. And so, the only way you can conclude that our sin blocks God's love for us is if you just ignore everything Paul has said so far in Romans. When we understand that our sin does not block God's love for us, because nothing can separate us from God's love, but our sin does block our love for others. It blocks our love for God. You know, it block, we're, we're failing to believe that everything we need in Christ we have, and so now I have to spend my life taking instead of giving. So we fight this stuff. We're exhorted, instructed to fight this stuff because our sin blocks our love for others. That is such an important concept to understand. Steve and I, Steve Saliba, who is uh, my soulmate. Okay, so um, let me just explain that for a second, all right? So I, uh, Steve is uh, married to my niece, Hope, and um, he is, amongst other things, an all-star on staff and my working partner, my sparring partner, all of that stuff. Uh, and so we talk a lot about this stuff. Um, and when we're in the gym together, we talk a lot about this stuff. And we were coming back from a trip not long ago. He travels with me sometimes, too, and uh, we were talking about this very thing. How often people confuse, confuse, radically confuse this good work stuff and how we interpret it as being vertical transaction with God rather than a horse. We, we fight sin because it blocks our love for other people. That's why, which is the fulfillment of the law, according to Jesus. Uh, so let me just conclude with this. I've gone on a little bit long. Um, we had lots of stuff this morning, okay? 
I mean, we had baptisms and new members. So it's not all my fault, okay? But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up here in a second. Um, so this is important to keep in mind. We cannot use what the Bible says about good works to renegotiate our acceptance with God. Or as uh, my friend Scott Clark, who teaches theology in California, says, we cannot use our sanctification to renegotiate our justification, which is what we typically do. We always need to be reminded that the good works that flow from faith are not part of a transaction with God, they are for others. So, this is the Christian, this is the Christian life. Let me give you a biblical understanding of the Christian life. A biblical understanding of the Christian life is not let go and let God. It's trust God and get going. And this is what I mean by that. Trust that God has settled all accounts between him and you, and then get going in sacrificial service to other people, your friends, your enemies, your family, your children, all, all those people, your coworkers, your city, the world. Trust that every, trust God and get going. Trust that everything between you and God has been made right. And then get going in sacrificial service uh, and love, the free life to your neighbor. So this is how Luther describes it and concludes it with this hymn. And I'll just quote this and then pray. Fruit of faith therein be showing that thou art to others loving. To thy neighbor thou wilt do as God in love hath done to you.